And the reason that religion is so powerful, both for good and for evil, is it has the ability to shape our conscience. And and it shapes our conscience. And, And we talked about last week this idea that our conscience shapes religious reality, whether it reflects the truth or not. And what we found is that our religious reality or our religious conscience has actually shifted over the past 50 to 60 years in our own country. And what we sometimes think is undeniable truth turns out is less truthful than we think as our conscience shifts. I mean, even in, this own, even in our own church building, um, if you go to the fellowship hall for um, the potluck, there is a, um, there's a giant white wall that has pulleys at the top of that wall. And at the top, the, the reason there's the pulleys there is because in the old sanctuary, that this, was a, this was a church that liked to consider itself integrated during the 1920s and 30s. But what that meant, what integration meant for them was that the, the, the African-American members of the congregation could sit on the side and then they would pull up the wall and they could watch as the service took place and everyone else sat in the pews. Right? This is in the building that we're in. And the thing is, in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s and 1950s, people thought that they were good Christians. They were good Christians while excluding other people simply based on the color of their skin. And even further, not only did they think they were good Christians, they thought that the Bible was on their side. And so one of the things that we need to realize is that our religious conscience is shaped by often by a dominant narrative that may or may not be truthful, that may or not be be truthful. And that's one of the reasons that religion can be so dangerous. And our conscience can be connected to truth, but our conscience can also be connected to error. Now, all of us have experienced this, right, to one extent or another. There was something that you used to feel guilty about, that as you grew, as you grew, you no longer feel guilty about it. And then, as you're, you continue on your spiritual journey, there are now things that you feel guilty about that you didn't feel guilty about before, right? One of the things is our national conscience has grown around issues of race and, there, and issues of free trade and all the things that now, like, we stop when we go to buy clothes, or we should, we stop and we think, how is this made? Was this made equitable and fairly? Does this have anything to do with my walk with Jesus? And like I said, in our country, we've experienced extraordinary changes in our national conscience. And ultimately, and this is what I want, this is where I'm leading on this, ultimately, we need to realize, as North American Christians, we need to realize that we have been shaped by a version of Christianity. As North American Christians, we need to realize we've been shaped by a version of Christianity. And if you are a person who has checked out of faith or wants nothing to do with faith or you've walked out of the church, you need to know that you've walked away from a version of Christianity. And to some degree, your conscience and our conscience have been shaped by a version of Christianity, a type of Christianity that I believe has a bit of the Jesus movement that we've been talking about, a bit of the Jesus movement mixed in with a bit of the temple model movement. In all of us, our consciences have been fine-tuned where we feel that the, the way we do towards God and we feel the way we do towards sin because of what we've been taught. And whoever controls your conscience has incredible power over you. So what we've been doing in this series is we've been kind of unpeeling what it means, what this idea of temple, the temple model of religion is. And what we've said is this, is that Since the beginning of time, since the ancient Assyrians and the 
Persians and the Babylonian empires, every religion in the world has had some form of the temple model of religion. And we're defining it this way. The temple model of religion says that in the temple model, there is a sacred space. There is a place you go where you are holy and reverent. And coffee is absolutely not allowed. And in that sacred space, and in that sacred space, there are sacred texts or oracles or inscriptions. And then there are sacred men. And it is almost always men who interpret and control these texts and tell us the way to live. And then there are sincere followers. Or if we are being less charitable, there are superstitious followers. And Jesus comes along, and he, I believe that he announces something brand new. He does not announce religion, um, the religion model or temple model 2.0 or Judaism 2.0, but Jesus says, I have come to do something brand new. He says, I give you a new covenant. I give you a new covenant. You no longer have to have someone else mediate God to you. You can go directly to God. He says, and I give you a new command, a new command and a new ethic a new way of living, and, in, and Jesus launches a movement of people, a movement where love would replace law-keeping, where self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice, and where our vertical relationship, how we're doing with God, is measured with how we're doing with other people. And Jesus would say, Jesus would say this, he said, if you are at the temple, if you are at the sacred holy space and you are trying to be right with God, you are trying to repair your relationship to God, and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, get up from what you're doing at the sacred holy space and go and make it right with your brother or sister. God can wait. And this was unheard of. No one had ever heard anyone talk this way. Not just in Judaism but in any of the religions of the world. And that's why, that's why Christianity begins to spread like wildfire, not only among Judaism, but among, among Gentiles as well. And then this guy named the Apostle Paul, and we talked about this last week, this guy by the name of the Apostle Paul comes along, and he's a key figure because he comes about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, and he writes a majority of the New Testament. He's someone that we need to take seriously and we need to wrestle with. But what we forget about this guy named Paul is that, that previous to becoming a Jesus follower, he was a Pharisee. And not only was he a Pharisee, he, according to his own words, he was chief among the Pharisees. He was the person who was leading the charge against the earliest Christians. He was persecuting the earliest Christians. And he knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. He knew the scriptures better than anyone else. And then, on the road to Damascus, he has this experience with the risen Lord, with the risen Jesus, that changes the trajectory of his life forever, and he becomes one of the biggest evangelists for the Jesus movement. Now, this is important, though, because when he joins the Jesus movement, he sets his sights on this idea that we can take a little of the temple model of religion, a little of the old way of doing things, and mix it with the Jesus movement. And he, we walked last week through Galatians 5, and because Paul says it is impossible to mix the old with the new, because if we do, if we do, what we'll do is we will spoil the entire thing. And Paul said that the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, is faith expressing itself through love, specifically love towards others. And this was brand new. No one had ever heard anything like this before. Now, 
Today, it's going to be a little bit different. It's actually a bit heavy. As I was reading and preparing for this week, I was like, dude, this is kind of a heavy Sunday. Um, I was trying to figure out a way to make it lighter. Uh, I couldn't figure a way out uh, to make it lighter. Uh, I, I want to talk a bit about the early church. And I want to talk, follow kind of church history to how we got to where we are today. Now, what you need to know is that the early Jesus movement, the early Jesus movement loved not only their own, but they loved other people. In Roman culture, in Roman culture, if you were a sick child, and particularly if you were a woman, you were often just cast aside. You were cast into the, you were cast away from the family. And the early Christians would bring children in, and they would care for not only their own poor, but they would care for the others. And this is one of the reasons that early Gentiles began to be attracted to the Jesus movement, because they saw the way they loved not only their own, but the way that they loved other people. But the thing that really got the world's attention, the thing that really captured people's attention is how the earliest Christians were not afraid of death. They weren't afraid of death because they served a resurrected Savior and they believed, they believed that he would take care of them and that they would ultimately receive never-ending life. And because of this belief, they were willing to risk their own life. They were willing to sacrifice their own life to care for another. And so we have, I've talked about this before, but we have these Christians walking through the streets and caring for those people who were dying from the, uh, a plague that hit Rome, and they would risk their own life bringing people back to health. This is one of the reasons that people believed in the resurrected Jesus is because these Christians talked about this Jesus who could resurrect people, and then he be, they began to care for people who had the plague. Often all they needed was some basic assistance, some water, and just, just basic, just someone caring for them. And so people who were dying all of a sudden begin to come back to life and people are like, dude, whatever you were talking about, we've seen this with our own eyes. We want to follow this Jesus. And about 25 years or so after Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the letters of Paul begin to circulate in the church and he begins to, he begins to share stories about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the thing is we forget is that they had no Bibles. For the first 300 years, particularly Gentile Christians, they didn't even have the Hebrew Scriptures, they had no Bible. All they had were stories, the stories of the Jesus movement. They had stories of the way that Jesus loved those on the margins of society, the way he cared for those that no one else would care for. And it fueled a movement of love. And then, and then on October 28th, 3000, or 312, October 28, 312, I'm sure a date all of you know. Um, on October 28, 312, there's this, this guy here, uh, named Constantine. Now, Constantine, before in school, he um, was the co-emperor of the Roman Empire. And he had another emperor, a guy whose name I cannot pronounce, someone you who studied Greek history or Roman history probably can, but his name was like Maximitus, Maximitus, Maximitus. So anyway, they were going to go to battle together to see who was going to be the supreme ruler of the empire. And as they're preparing to go to battle, the day before the battle, um, uh, Constantine receives a vision. And, on the vi and in this vision, he sees the sign of the cross. And he heard a voice telling him, he heard a voice saying, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. And so immediately before the, the, his army is ready to go into battle against his co-emperor, um, he has the entire army paint the sign of the cross on their shield. And then Constantine and his soldiers go to do battle against his co-emperor. 
he, he overcomes, he wins the battle, and he gives praise to God. And he says, clearly the Christian God is superior because I have just won the battle. And suddenly the Christians begin to gain status in the kingdom. And, and, and the crucifixion no longer is, is, a, is a mark of suffering, but now it becomes, the cross becomes a sign of celebration. And the cross became a sign of victory. And what ends up happening is the Jesus movement goes from this tiny little group, starting with Jesus and a few disciples. Within 300 years, it becomes the primary, it becomes the, it becomes the religion of the empire. And, and the Roman Empire, before, within the next few hundred years, becomes known as the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the problem was that the Holy Roman Empire was way more Roman and way more empire than it was holy. In fact, Constantine, smart politician that he was, he kind of dug this guy Jesus, but he also knew that Jesus' call on his life would give up some things. So he waits till his deathbed to convert and be baptized, just to be sure that he can cover everything before that point. But Constantine legalizes Christianity. He legalizes Christianity, and when he did so, he poured so much money into the church that what was this small movement now becomes a dominant power. And they begin building gorgeous church buildings, buildings we can still go and see today all over the world. If anywhere that there was, there was a story about a, a martyr dying, they would build an edifice. And so the, they begin to build sacred spaces. And then the priests and the bishops begin to be elevated to positions of power. And now, because they had all this money and all this power and all this time on their hands, they begin to take these, these, these texts from Paul and from others who had been circulating around and they begin to compile them into what we know today as the Bible. And then, and then the other thing that Constantine did is he, he said that if, you had, if it was a church building, if it was a holy place, you didn't have to pay tax. Well, the tax advisors of the day, they called their wealthy clients together and said, guys, I figured out a way to get around the Roman tax. You just need to dedicate your mansion or your manor as a holy space, as a church. Donate it to the church. You can still live in it. Donate it to the church, but it's tax-free. And so then all these wealthy people begin donating their property and, and, and calling their property a church so that they could avoid tax. The other thing, and, and Constantine, did some good things. I know this is a bit boring, but I need, I, I kind of want us to kind of get a sense of what happens to Christianity. How it goes from a random Jesus movement that's hanging out in kind of a dusty desert to becoming the dominant religion of the world for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, uh, the, but Constantine does some good things because he's influenced by Christian teaching. He gives rights to kids or to children for the first time. He gives rights to children. He outlaws the practice of crucifixion. He begins donating monies to families that would take in orphans and children. And overnight, and overnight, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. But the problem was, and this was no one's, this wasn't any grand scheme, but the problem was that suddenly Christianity became inseparable from empire. And the church leaders created their own version of the temple model religion with very little of the Jesus movement sprinkled in. And now there would be new sacred places and new sacred men and new sacred text. And I want to tell us a story this morning that really helps us kind of understand one of the things that happens um, as they become the dominant religion. 
religion and as, as the, they become an established religion. And it's called the Arian Controversy. Does anyone know the Arian Controversy? I'm sure most of you just sit around at night reading about the Arian Controversy. Um, but the Arian Controversy was one of the first big theological battles the church had. And it was over the word begotten. And there was a guy named Arius. Um, there was a guy named Arius, and he lived in Alexandria. Uh, and not Virginia, the other one. Um, he lived in Alexandria. And, and Arius believed, Arius believed that, that Jesus was not born divine, but he became divine after he was born. That it was, divinity was conferred on him because he was better than anyone who'd ever lived. Now, most church leaders said, that's ridiculous, including this guy named Athanasius. But the problem was, as there was all these kind of different views and viewpoints floating around, and so Constantine um, and some of the bishops decide, we need to put an end to this once and for all. And so they have a council, which, in, uh, which ends up yielding the Nicene Creed. If any of you have ever learned the Nicene Creed or quoted the Nicene Creed, they have a council that gets together and, and they begin to debate, was Jesus, was he born divine or was he, was he born divine or did he become divine? And, and so they begin to debate and out of this comes really, some really good theology. And, and, but the problem was is that Constantine is not a theologian. He's a politician. And for him, the unity of Christianity was good for him because it was good for empire. And so he wanted to begin to harden the boundaries and say, look, this is what it means, this is what it means to be Christian. And if you are on the outside of this, you are, if you are not orthodox, you're a heretic. But the problem was that not only was being a heretic, being a heretic get you kicked out of church and you didn't get the good wine anymore, it also meant you could be killed. Listen to this. After this, this big battle between Arius and Athanasius, Athanasius was the bishop kind of leading the other, the other side of the charge. After the battle between um, Arius and Athanasius, um, Constantine puts out this edict, and this is the end of the edict that he writes. He said, I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. And now suddenly theological division was heresy that could get you killed. And believing the wrong thing was suddenly a crime. And, what you, and, and this is what happens. In this moment, what you believe trumps how you behave. Now, I love the Nicene Creed. I love the Apostles' Creed. Others of you may have learned the Apostles' Creed. They're beautiful theology. I think they get the theology right. Have you ever noticed one of the key things that's missing from both the Apostles and the Nicene Creed? There's nothing about the way you live. There's nothing that even references loving others or loving God, right? Love is completely absent. Why? Because if you're an emperor and you're helping, or you're an empire and helping shape a doc, or helping shape a document, you really don't want a lot in there about the way you behave. It's about the way you believe. And the problem with the creed and along with other creeds is there's no mention of love. There's no mention of behavior. And you could subscribe to the creed. You could say, yeah, I am down with it. That is good theology. And you could live any way you wanted. So the church leaders who are being funded by empire began to carefully craft the message. And Christians began arresting Christians for believing the wrong thing. 
This is a huge change that happens really rapidly. And suddenly you had the church version, the Christian version of the temple model, and the Christian sacred men. And this new group of Christian sacred men begin withholding the gates to heaven and hell. And if you disagreed with those in leadership, they would withhold communion from you, or they withhold baptism from you, or you could be excommunicated from the church. And to be excommunicated from the church meant that you were excluded from heaven and were destined to hell. Now, I personally wish I could excommunicate a few people sometimes, but overall, bad thing. And suddenly the Pope, this is crazy, that the Pope and the priests and the bishops and the archbishops were in power. And even the powerful landowners and the lords and the, 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 the landowners and the kings and the lords of the, of the time begin to fear the Pope and the priests and the bishops. And then, this is where it leads, so this is kind of where we're heading up. And then in the 11th century, this guy by the name of Pope Urban II decides we need to retake the Holy Land. And so he offers anyone um, join him on a crusade the forgiveness of sins if they would go with him on this crusade to retake the Holy Land. And so Pope Urban II sends this crusade out and they rape and they pillage their way across Europe until they get to the Holy Land, until they get to, the, first they go to Constantinople and then they go on to the Holy Land. And they, they behave terribly because they believe their sins were forgiven. But then once they get to the Holy Land, there's, I, I didn't bring my book. I was going to read some of the stories. There's some accounts of people who were with the Crusaders that are some of the most brutal, some of the most brutal acts you can ever imagine took place. As they begin to behead Muslims and others who weren't Christians. And then they even, they begin to behead other Christians and kill other Christians who didn't fall into the right set of beliefs. So there's this group of Christians called the Karths. Um, they were in France. And... Um, Weird group, I'll admit, they didn't, they, didn't, uh, they didn't have sex, they didn't drink, there's a few other things, they're very like, much like the Shakers. There's like 200 of them in this one French town, and, and the Crusaders come into this town, and they come into the town, and they said, we want to know who the Karsts are in town, and the townspeople say, there's about 20,000 people who live in the town, they say, we will not release, we will not release these people, tell you who are Karsts and who aren't, and so the Crusaders massacred 20,000 thousand people in the town men women and children but then they continued on to jerusalem and as they're on their way to jerusalem they said why not murder the people who are responsible for murdering jesus and jewish men and women and their families were murdered out all throughout europe and it took anti-semitism was taken to a level had never been seen before their wealth was stolen their wealth was stolen and their land was stolen. And on their way to do it, the cry of the crusaders was, the cry of the crusaders was, Vos Deus, Vos Deus, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. Then the next big date is 1517. A guy by the name of Martin Luther, who some of you have probably heard of before. Martin Luther comes along and he says, something is wrong. This is not who we're supposed to be. This is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so Martin Luther goes to a church in Germany and he nails the 99 theses on the church door. The kind of the, the rallying cry of the Reformation. And we as Protestants are in some ways recipients of that moment where Martin Luther nails 
the, the 99 thesis to the, the door. And, and what he says is, look, you do, the, the, the church is not the ultimate authority. The church is not the ultimate authority, but instead for Luther, what he does is he shifts the ultimate authority from the church to Scripture. Luther transfers it from the church to Scripture. And so in, in the, with the Reformation, we get a number of solas. The first is sola fideus, which is by faith alone. And this is the hallmark of Protestantism, that we are saved not through what we do, not through works, not through giving money to an institution, but we are saved through faith alone. But the other thing is, as, as Luther and the Reformation are taking off, there's also a technological transformation that's taking off at the exact same time. And the, the emergence of the printing press. We talked a couple weeks ago about William Tyndale, who's killed because he puts the, the Bible in the, every person's language, where they could read the Bible on their own. And so Luther says it, it is not only by faith alone, but it is sola scriptura. It is by, it's by scripture alone, or, or the foundation of scripture as well. And so there, the, the Bible begins to be put in the hands of ordinary people. And there's this line from Luther where he says, a man, a simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. But without meaning to without meaning to, what happens is that in the hands of the reformers, the Bible becomes a weapon. The Bible becomes a weapon to do battle. And the reformers, they were armed with scriptures, and they did exactly what the church had done before. They begin to they begin to fight, and they begin to splinter. And what ends up happening is you, you get two Protestant groups, and then four Protestant groups, and then six or an eight Protestant groups, and then 16, and then 30. I'm going to stop there. Um, I was trying to double them all. Um, and the thing is, they begin to, to split over the most minute details, how you interpret certain texts. They weren't splitting over how you love people. They were splitting over these ridiculous theological battles. And the Protestants, and we Protestants, I own this, right? This is my people. We've been beating people over the head with the Bible for a long time. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the tragedy of all of this is, is that love lost. And we send it, simply ended up with bunches and bunches and bunches of temple model Christian religions. And I can just imagine that, that Jesus and Peter and Paul are in heaven hanging out in the clouds. Maybe they're sharing a drink together. Maybe they're smoking a cigar. I don't know if Jesus smokes cigars. But I can imagine they're hanging out in heaven and they're looking down. And Jesus is saying, how did they miss it? Do they not remember that the last thing that I did was I washed their feet? Was I washed their feet and said, now you should do for one another as I have done for you? Jesus says, I said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And how will they know that you are my disciples? How will they know that you are my followers? By the way you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I can imagine Paul saying, oh, Jesus, I, I mean, yeah, I totally, you, did you hear what I said in Galatians? I said in Galatians 5, 6, he said, the only thing, I said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then in verse 14, he says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Peter, not to be outdone, because Peter never wants to be outdone, Peter says, oh no, in, in 1 Peter 1.22, I said, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. And somewhere along the way, way, we went off the rails. But the thing is, it's easy to be critical. It's easy to be critical of our forefathers and our foremothers. But the truth of the matter is, there is a little temple model religion in all of us. For example, for example, there are, there are things that continue to hold us back. Think about this, just a, few, just a few questions. Do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder how close to sinning you can get without actually sinning? Like, what is, how do I follow the letter of the law without breaking the law? Can you imagine, like, God's up in heaven looking down, and he's like, how stupid can you be? That's not the point. It's not the point. It's not about keeping the letter of the law. It's not about, like, just staying right inside the box. And if that's ever been you, that's temple model thinking. Or is there some religious practice? Maybe you, maybe you have missed church, which you should feel guilty about, but maybe you miss going to church, or maybe you've missed, um, maybe you've missed prayer or reading scripture, and you feel more guilty about that then you feel guilty about mistreating someone else, maybe someone you work with or someone in your family. That's temple model religion. Or when you failed morally, maybe you, maybe you um, cheated on a significant other or you did something wrong. Did you feel more wrong about the person that you had harmed or were you more worried about whether God would be unhappy with you? That's temple model religion. Do other people's sins elicit a a self-righteousness in you? Boy, I am glad I am not like that person. I have got my life together. That's temple model religion. Do your beliefs, do your beliefs ever get in the way of loving other people? That's temple model thinking. See, Jesus died for all of us. We are all in this together. We are all broken people. And the gospel is that God's love is available to each and every one of us, that we are all broken, that we are all in need of God's grace. And the thing that like, I just keep wrestling with in a world that is constantly splintering and in a religious landscape, even in the North American Christianity that keeps splitting over the dumbest issues, I just wonder what it takes to get back to the words of the old song that said, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they will know we are Christians by love our love. You don't want to miss next week. Let's pray. God, we feel, we feel heavy as we, 
as we think about the ways that our forefathers and our foremothers had gotten things so wrong. And as we think about the ways that we get it so wrong. And I just pray that that we as a community, that we would be known by our love. That when the, the words of our community, the table, slip off someone's mouth, that the first thing that someone knows us for is the way that we love others the way that we love our neighbors, the way that we love those on the margins, the way that we love those that no one else loves, the way that we care for those that no one else cares for. I pray that we'd be known as the people who are willing to sacrifice our own lives and our own comfort to help others. I pray that you would continue to shape us and form us into the very image of Christ Jesus. And that we would reflect your love to a Amen. Amen.